One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week on Truth and Movies, Claire Foy dons the dragon tattoo in Scandi thriller spin-off, The Girl in the Spider's Web. Shushu, <laughs> you're my sister. Hirokazu Koreda spins a tale about an unconventional Japanese family in the Cannes Prize-winning Shoplifters. And in Film Club, we revisit a classic of Japanese cinema, Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. And we're back. Michael Eder here in the host's chair, sitting across from a uh, supergroup of Little White Lies contributors. Hannah Woodhead, welcome back. Thank you. You've been off in the States for a few days, right? I have, yeah. You visited the Criterion Cupboard. I did. I, I went in the cupboard. It's a very strange experience because you're, like, you're very conscious of the fact that like, you're standing where kind of Barry Jenkins and Claire Denis have stood. Did but they make a YouTube video of you rifling through? I wish they had. No, they were just kind of like, tell what you want, which is oh. like, the worst thing to say because you immediately okay. like, start panicking. And you're like, How many is take what you want yeah, and okay. are they going to judge my choices? Well, we can judge your choices off mic <laughs> later. And Adam Woodward. Hi. Welcome back, Adam. Have you been anywhere exotic? No, I, I can't say I have. Actually, saying that, since the last time I was on, I was in Mumbai at a film festival, okay. which was kind of fascinating. I'm going oh, to do yeah. a little report on that in the next issue of the magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really interesting. There's, it's a huge international film festival, but mm-hmm. a big focus on independent Indian cinema, so it's kind of looking beyond Bollywood. And uh, just when I was over there, sort of Me Too has hit India recently and there was a lot of fallout from that. So it was, yeah, really fascinating time to be there. Oh, wow. I look forward to reading that. We have a full week of new releases to get to, but first a bit of follow-up from last week's episode on Suspiria. Daniel sent us a, a mammoth email saying he thought that we that Suspiria was brutally and unjustly maligned by the contributors last week. He, he pointed out the Tom York soundtrack, uh, the excellent body horror, dancing that's remarkable and impressive and all sorts of things that we maybe missed out on. He thought it was clearly a labour of love for Mr. Guadagino. The extra character worked out with Tilda Swinton, impressed by the casting, story and production details. But Daniel, you do still say that it's only a 3-4-4 for you, so I do wonder what constitutes a 5. This is quite a strong defence of a film, though. Adam, Hannah, did you love Suspiria more than Simran and Kelly and I did last week? No, I thought you guys gave it a fair crack last week. Um, I saw it with you in, in Venice, yeah. and uh, as, as you know, I'm not really a fan of this movie, but I, I think it's interesting that like the body horror stuff from a kind of practical effects point of view I think is 
executed fairly well but mm-hmm. by that point you're not really interested in in that aspect of the film like mm-hmm. once you once you kind of know you're not really watching a horror movie that kind of ending where the body horror kicks in feels a little bit unearned and rushed mm-hmm. and I thought the guys last week picked out on the dance scenes as being quite... Yeah, Simran was, yeah. was a bit more positive than Kelly and I were. Um, Hannah, did you like Suspiria? I did not. Oh, um, I saw it with David Jenkins and we were like both very much like, why? Okay. <laughs> but I did like Tom York's score. Yes. I think maybe not as part of the film, but mm-hmm. as, a, as a soundtrack, I really liked it. Yeah, so Daniel sought me out on Twitter um, uh, to have, <laughs> take exception with the score points. I, I admit it was quite rushed. I, I mean, just don't think it worked in context. There's no Johnny Greenwood. <laughs> Precisely. I mean, You Are Never Really Here is still the gold standard for me this year for soundtracks, and I don't think this really came close. No. But thank you for the email, Daniel. If anyone else wants to let us know about what they thought about Suspiria or other films, they can do so at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or at truthandmovies on Twitter or on the comments page on lwlies.com slash podcast. So let's kick off uh, with the new releases this week. The first one is The Girl in the Spider's Web. So leather-clad hacker vigilante Elizabeth Salander is back. She's tasked with stealing a top-secret government computer program and soon gets caught in a web of intrigue involving nuclear access codes, Russian thugs and her evil twin sister. The role of Elizabeth was in the past assumed by Numi Rapace and Rooney Mara, but this soft reboot stars Claire Foy. Here she is showing off her Swedish accent. I've imagined this moment for so long. I had a whole speech prepared. I don't care, just shoot me. Shoot you? You're my sister. Someone always has to carry the pain, Libby. Now it's your turn. So, Numi, Rooney, now Claire. Hannah, does Claire Foy stand up with uh, the uh, Elizabeths of past? You know, I'm a huge booster for uh, Finch's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I caught some flack for this on, on the old Twitter sphere when I reviewed this film negatively. And yeah, I mean, I, I have no issue with Claire Foy. I thought she was good in Unsane, which mm-hmm. otherwise I really did not like. But I think she's woefully miscast here. I think she doesn't really seem to know what she's doing in the film, and neither did I. I think her accent's very shaky, and she lacks that kind of edge. I think Lisbeth Salander has this sort of um, vulnerability to her, but it's very entrenched in this like androgynous, like industrial punk sort of get-up and attitude she has. And for me, Claire Foy kind of like is just so not that she mm. you knows this is the queen like mm-hmm. I, and it's it's probably in some respects not her fault because she for me she's just so in sort of ingrained in my head as this very like prim and proper kind of british actress so i think she was always going to struggle but again in her defense the film itself i think would have been a mess no matter who was cast as elizabeth really? and i okay. think it's so it, to say it's a soft reboot you have to really have seen um Pinchers go with drunk tattoo okay. to understand anything that's going on in this film, to know kind of who the characters are, to understand the story. I mean, they're talking about things that happened in the second and third book okay. that we've obviously like mm-hmm. they never were filmed. So you're having to fill in a lot of blanks for yourself, and there are things that kind of you get towards the end of the film, and you're like, oh, okay, right now this makes sense. Something that happened like half an hour ago, and it, I thought it was very. I sort of it felt like it had been made in a hurry to kind of get it out there because Sony have been trying to make this film for a while now and mm-hmm. yeah I just 
I, I was very bored by it all, which is hard. You know, all the buzzwords are there. Scandi thriller, industrial <laughs> punk, class bang, and none so of it. So this is something, reading, you know, looking down the list of the cast list here, it's basically everybody who had a star-making role in 2016, <laughs> 2017. You have Sylvia Hooks from Blade Runner 2049, Vicky Creeps from Phantom Thread, class bang from The Square, Lakeith Stanfield, of course, as well. And then well. Stephen Merchant, and for Stephen some Mer- reason. That rising star. That's an amazing cast, right? That's a, yeah, that's like a, an all-time cast, you know. We talked about ensemble casts the other week mm-hmm. in, in bad movies, and this is another contender. Um, I wrote in my review, actually, like, Lakeith and Vicky get a really raw deer here. Like, they're both such great actors, and they're given these kind of very thankless bit parts. Mm-hmm. The same with Class Bang, who I absolutely loved in The Square, and mm-hmm. for some reason they've made him like a blonde Russian henchman. Whereas, like, you look at him and you can't understand why he wasn't cast as Bonkist, which mm-hmm. I think would have been a perfect role for him. Interesting, yeah. Because this is a film where, you know, with Vicky Creeps and, and uh, Class Bang in particular, they're actors who I'd never seen in films before. Mm. After Phantom Thread, after The Square, I'm like, I'm going to see what they do next. And this is what they do next? <laughs> is this a reason to see the film? You want to see some more Class Bang? No, no. <laughs> okay. him and, poor him and Vicky, really. I mean, and, and Lakeith as well. Though, like, Lakeith's like, doing his best with this film. You know, he plays this kind of... Uh, I guess like Edward Snowden style hacker who mm-hmm. follows uh, the paper trail to <laughs> to Sweden to try and track down uh, Elizabeth Slander and he kind of gets to do some stuff I guess but okay. you know it just feels like such a huge waste I mean even if Claire Foy all she does is kind of grimace for two hours and it's you know I, I was very when you've got that much talent on show to mm-hmm. waste it kind of that monumentally is quite an achievement it's a shame Adam were you caught in this web happily gladly (laughs) well I feel quite sheepish now because I've got to say I actually quite like this Um, I totally agree with a lot of the casting issues especially with Claire Foy I think I think she brings certain emotionality to the character Mm -hmm. there's definitely a lot more acting going on in this compared to like what you saw previously with Rooney Mara she plays it very kind of cool and icy and you never really get to sort of scratch beneath that surface she kind of only really exposes herself a couple of times and here it's like you're kind of waiting for Claire Foy to sort of like you know meet her comeuppance basically and and that's teased throughout the film and, and it's kind of to an annoying extent, I think. But I think she kind of looks the part. I think there's other issues in the cast with like the guy who plays Mikkel Blomqvist, who was in the Borg, mm. McElroy, played um, Beyond Borg, oh, uh, Severe uh, Goodnessum. He's okay, but probably a bit too young to play Mikkel Blomqvist. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Lucky Stanfield, just totally wasted. I mean, I think you really could, he, he could cut out that whole subplot with his NSA agent and basically just have the same film. Well, just replace Stephen Merchant's character with, yeah. with the, I, the the whole Stephen Merchant thing was so distracting for me. He turns up as this kind of, again, <laughs> and <laughs> generic Edward Snowden figure mm-hmm. um, who uh, recruits Lesbeth to do this sort of uh, steal something for him, a computer program from the NSA, and. Uh, it's so jarring to see him like just kind of bumbling in with this British accent and not even making an effort. He's just playing himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another whole a whole other issue with this is that it has very much... Uh, one of my chief complaints about another film this year, The Predator, was uh-huh. that it relies very much on the kind of autistic savant um, oh, okay. trope whereby there's a young child in this who 
is revealed to have like autistic savant powers and it's like you know are we not past that stage now as a as a collective as an mm-hmm. industry where you can wrap up a thrill by going the child has superpowers like mm. yeah I, I, I agree the script has some issues it's kind of quite baggy plot wise um and that is because of the amount of characters you, you've got kind of shoehorned in but mm. I think just as a sort of slick Scandi noir thriller, mm-hmm. it works. Like it holds together <laughs> narratively. Um, definitely has its issues. I think Fede Alvarez, who yeah. who's directed, uh, I think the first film he did was that Evil Dead uh, yeah. remake reboot. Um, he also did a film called Don't Breathe mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. So he's a pretty solid genre director. And there's some really, really good cinematography and set pieces in this. There's one particular shot of like a car veering off a road, which which I just think is like super impressive. And yeah, I think I, I was. A little bit sceptical coming into this, but mm-hmm. actually quite happy to spend a couple of hours in this world again. And, and I will say it's not a patch on the Fincher version. And mm-hmm. I'd say maybe just about on a par with the original uh, Swedish language version mm-hmm. from, I think, 2009 or 10. Yeah, coming up to 10 years ago. Yeah. Now. Um, mm-hmm. I can't see how Sony can kind of take this and actually build it into a new franchise, mm-hmm. whether they've got kind of more films lined up with this. Be interesting to see how it does at the box office. But yeah, ultimately was happy to kind of spend another couple of hours in this. In this okay. Film. Let's spare one more thought for Claire Foy, this year in review for her, <laughs> starting with a great auteur film, and same with Steven Soderbergh, first man, key supporting role in a big Oscar contender, you know, Venice world premiere, and now this, a potential franchise movie, doesn't feel like any of those have really launched her to the next stage in her but career. you can kind of see her trajectory from doing something like The Crown, which was a huge mm-hmm. thing, her breakout yeah. role, really, mm-hmm. and you, you can kind of see that she's clearly trying to challenge herself mm-hmm. and not be pigeonholed or, or kind of, I mean, you, you imagine the amount of offers she she was getting for like prestige dramas after been, yeah. the crown so fair play to her i think she's probably the best thing in all those films you mentioned mm-hmm. and, ma- and maybe even this even if she is slightly miscast mm-hmm. i think she kind of really holds it together I-, I bought her just about as Lisbeth salander and definitely was invested in her <laughs> still want to watch them hannah let's put some scores on this in anticipation enjoyment in retrospect with the girl on the spider's web I have to say, it was like a two in anticipation. I, I apologise to the listeners because I feel like I have gone on about David Fincher a lot, but um, I really was in no hurry to see another outing of this without David Fincher involved. So yeah, like a two and then enjoyment, a two. It just really, I was so kind of bored. The opening sequence is basically ripped directly from Girl with a Drunk Tattoo right. and it really annoyed me and it didn't get any better from there. And then like a two in retrospect, I've no desire to go back to this or to see another one. Mm-hmm. Adam, it sounds like you're a bit more positive than Hannah. Well, I'd say my, my anticipation score probably would have been a two. However, I saw this immediately after coming out of Robin Hood. Okay, which <laughs> there we go. Aut- okay. Automatically bumped my this anticipation up. sense now. Yeah, so I'd say probably three for anticipation and then I'd, I'd match that for enjoyment and in retrospect. And yeah, as I say, definitely a film with, with its issues. I don't know how much you can kind of fairly compare it to the Fincher version. Obviously it is trying to hit some of the same beats, but it is a completely new team. I mean, the story they're basing this from is like not even part of the original mm-hmm. Stieg Larsson trilogy. It's mm-hmm. like written several years posthumously yeah, like so, someone else, yeah. Yeah. you know it's it's probably always facing a bit of an uphill struggle mm-hmm. but I think I think Feli Alvarez is a really competent director and mm-hmm. I think he, he probably pulls this together that's good to hear his previous films I thought were terrific anyway thank you so much for the scores both uh, let's move on to our next new release this week Shoplifters
So this Palm Door winning drama from Hirokazu Kureda focuses on an unlikely family unit living on the fringes of Japanese society. The Shibata clan supplement their meagre income from their low-paying jobs and grandmother's pension with shoplifting, a pursuit that young lad Shota has developed into an art. At the start of the film, the family expands as they take in a little girl they find abandoned in the freezing cold, but it's soon revealed that there's more to this misfit household than it seems on first glance. Adam, we saw this at Cannes, where it won the top prize, the Palm Door. Yeah. Um, were you expecting much going into this? Hirokazu Kureda, quite a festival favourite. Yeah, he's actually someone whose films I've mostly seen at festivals. Mm-hmm. And I think he's a regular at Cannes. His film, Like Father, Like Son, mm-hmm. which I think is still my favourite of his, was, was there a few years back. And Our Little Sister was, I think, maybe at Venice. But anyway, yeah, he, he he's someone who I always kind of look out for. He mm-hmm. just makes these really... Especially when you're at a film festival and, you know, you tend to be in that cycle of seeing pretty austere, intense, like, art house cinema. Mm-hmm. His films just feel like a balm for the soul often. They're, like, yeah. really just beautiful and graceful and, you know, often quite sad and bittersweet as well. Mm-hmm. But he, he just constructs these really kind of wonderfully observed family dramas. Mm-hmm. And this is another one. Obviously, he's really interested in the idea of, of a family unit and actually, you know, how that's made up and kind of deconstructing that in a very kind of subtle, nuanced way. And and he does that, I think, really masterfully here. Yeah, he's developed this run of films recently. He started off as a documentary filmmaker in Japan in the 90s and then made a few films that did hit on the international international stage. But since Like Father, Like Son onwards, he's hit this stride Mm. of gently observed, warmly observed character, family domestic dramas with a little bit of social edge to them. And that's what this is here. This develops into almost a comment on the family unit, the nuclear family in Japan. What is a family? You know, would you rather choose your family? Yeah. Is family bound by blood or by by friendship? By yeah, know, he's uh, he's in this really amazing groove now, mm-hmm. and it's it's funny because it's not something where it's not a situation where you're waiting for his films with like massive anticipation because I you, well, I, I think I think purely because you kind of know what you're going to get from them. Like mm-hmm. there are elements that are surprising in this, and that's down to the kind of narrative. Well, I, I guess you kind of subvert certain expectations we have of, of like the family unit and the family drama. But yeah, you kind of know what exactly what you're getting from a Coriolis film mm-hmm. these days, mm-hmm. and that is that is not criticism. That is like a really wonderful thing, I think, because here's someone who is just like working at the absolute peak of his craft. You're just totally comfortable in the fact that this guy. Is yeah, he's just a complete master storyteller. I think he's comfortably and quite quietly one of the most consistent filmmakers working today. And he puts out a film a year. He's already got another film that's almost in the can. His first English language production. Can't wait to see that. That'll be in next can, I would assume. Hannah, did you have much relationship with with him before? No, you know it's funny. I feel like I've been waiting to watch this film for about half a year, which I guess I have because I wasn't at Cannes and everyone at Cannes had told me how great it was. And uh, Coriada is one of those directors who. I wasn't really familiar with before I started at Little White Lies, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, you obviously speak, always speak very highly of him, <laughs> yeah. and uh, David always speaks very highly of him. I remember he gave me a box set of the Family Values okay, um, films, yeah. mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm much to my shame still to watch it. But um, I was, yeah, I was so excited to watch this, and I, I'm a bit sad that I had to do it on kind of a screener in my house because I feel right. like I would have liked to have seen this at the cinema. It's so immersive mm-hmm. and delicate, and there's a lot you kind of miss out on just because you're sat at home. Mm. fidgeting rather than being in a dark room which is I think the best place to see this film but no it was just so lovely Mm. it was really you know bittersweet and tender and refreshing I think to see a film set in Japan that feels kind of I guess a preconception I have is that everything always feels a bit sort of there's a lot of um 
austereness mm-hmm. to a lot of Japanese films. That this is so kind of everything feels so warm about mm. it and see and particularly the um the younger cast in this film is so kind of remarkable like what Koyeda gets out of these two sort of central child performers mm-hmm. and this is like outstanding and yeah i i was really um glad to finally get to see it i think mm. it's it's a really beautiful film it's I can't stress that enough that if you're not familiar with Corey that I feel like this yeah. would be a, for me it was a perfect introduction I and feel you'll like crack open that people. box set next right yeah of yeah. course yeah I, I think that that central relationship of the two kids mm-hmm. so the film is set up as you kind of um, spending time with this family unit and mm-hmm. then they adopt basically a young girl that they find out on the street and informally adopt they just yeah grab they her just sort of get her, her. Yeah. but the, the family are living in a, in a sort of um basement um house the one room house yeah. that's squished They're in between squished the together and, yeah. and so they just welcome her in and, and it, it sort of it hinted that her parents are either abusive or basically just abandoned her and yeah there's interesting conflict between this adorable young girl <laughs> and the young boy who isn't quite accepting of her initially and uh, yeah i just think that's really wonderful how Corrida gets them to play off each other and yeah. she soon picks up so the the kind of patriarch figure as the title suggests he he kind of encourages the the kids to to come out with him on his little shoplifting excursions mm-hmm. and it's so lovely to see her kind of following suit and yeah, learning the tricks of the trade baseball hand gestures don't yeah, they yeah. when they're doing um, their shoplifting errands yeah I, I think that opening sequence is one of the best all year when they're at the uh, supermarket mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> there's that great shot where um the father is like lurking around the corner like doing the hand signals and i was like that was when i was like okay this is just great like mm-hmm. i'm two seconds in and i love this already it feels like coriander doing dickens like it's it's right. very you know kind of oliver twist mm-hmm. and sort of David Copperfield but I don't say that in a kind of negative way at all I think it's it's a really as well as a study of a family it's like a character study you yeah. know you get a sense for who all these people are and kind of how they relate to each other and yeah I thought it was really uh you know refreshing to see that a group of shoplifters who may not maybe it's a British thing we're not that sympathetic towards the plight of the shoplifter but you know positioning it and seeing kind of how they forged this life kind of out of nothing. You know, they're surviving on the grandmother's pension. Like, that's their chief income. And there's so much love and so much positivity in their household. They all care for each other so much. Mm -hmm. And they have fun. Like, there's this great scene where it's the sex scene where the kids Mm -hmm. walk in. And they're like, (laughs) quick, put the clothes on. Well, well, that's the thing. It seems that he takes this grab bag of family experiences Mm -hmm. but shows it in this unlikely unconventional setting. Mm. So that is, well, they are the mother and father figure when the kids are out they they you know they get it <laughs> they on, have a life you know, you know? Yeah. and that's so refreshing to see is a family where you you, you know the mum and the dad aren't just the mum and the dad they're real people mm-hmm. and but then this, this seems like we're talking about a film that is mainly plotless i mean it is full yeah. of moments and it's what i love about creators films is they're so organic they seem to just be like life unfolding before your eyes this film does have a sort of compelling structure as you go on you learn more about this family uh, not to get into necessary spoiler territories or talk too much about the back half of the film but you do realize who these people are in this context mm. and how they've come together and that's where it starts to develop this almost steamroller feel behind it against this rigid Japanese or international structure of what family means yeah. or what it means about being part of the, the system. and Yeah, that's where it takes on more of a kind of social commentary mm. edge as well because ultimately these, these are people living on the fringes of 
on the margins of Japanese society and mm-hmm. their shoplifting exploits are tolerated to an extent um, by the local <laughs> community mm-hmm. which is a nice little detail I think that they're not criminals but essentially in the eyes of the people in their neighbourhood you know they're just getting by and crucially they, they never actually take more than they need to mm-hmm. so you know is that case of like taking a loaf of bread to feed the family sort of thing well, they have the the motto which is if it's in a shop no one owns it yet because no one's bought it so it's fair <laughs> game as long as the shop doesn't go out of business which is almost like an Italian neorealist right. view of, of shoplifting isn't it but Hannah you, you mentioned the kids he's such a good director of kids all of his films from I Wish uh, like Father Like Son etc nobody knows he's made so many films with kids at the centre but he also has a great roster of actors that pop up in nearly all his films mm. so in this one he has uh, Kieran Kiki who plays the the grandmother in this and she's in seven of his movies and and she passed away this year one of these fantastic figures which has got such a striking look and plays these old ladies with a little spark a little edge to them and in this one it's probably the edgiest role she's played yeah I mean, the last thing i saw her in was um a film called sweet bean right by another Japanese director called Nomi Kawase. And I'm not a huge fan of Nomi Kawase generally, but that film is, is yeah, as the title suggests, it is very sweethearted. Mm-hmm. And there's, I mean, there's a scene in that where it's probably like a 10, 15 minute virtually unbroken shot of her just making these these little kind of sweet bean <laughs> dumplings. And it is, it's absolute magic. Mm-hmm. She's terrific. I also like Lily Frankie, who plays the father figure, who's like such a good, sort of golden-hearted, shifty, deadbeat guy, <laughs> uh, middle-aged cool guy. He spends most of the spends most of the film limping along after his son, <laughs> trying to you know get him to call him daddy. <laughs> it's in- incredible. I, anyway, I, I love this film. Uh, but uh, Adam, tell me your scores. Well, yeah, I've got to be a four in anticipation, just based on his his previous work, and probably a four for enjoyment. I tempted to bump this up to a five for yeah. in retrospect. <laughs> I think it's funny it winning the Palm Door. Obviously, we we were kind of seeing a lot of films that, over that couple of week period, and it was definitely one that I enjoyed at the time, but was a little bit surprised it won the top prize, mm-hmm. um, just because of the strength of the competition, and mm-hmm. it felt like. You know, nice guys don't always win in these <laughs> in these kinds of festivals. So it was a real, real kind of treat and and surprise to, mm-hmm. to see that win. And yeah, yeah, it is a film that's definitely stuck with me. So, Hannah, I guess a four in anticipation. Again, I'd heard so much about this from everyone at Cannes, and I was excited to watch it. And then yeah, I've got a fours across the board for me. It's funny. I was thinking about this the other day that I was on the podcast when we did the Square, which mm. was the previous Palm Door winner. And this couldn't be sort of more different. And mm-hmm. that felt like a very nasty film in a lot of ways. And this is just so warm. Mm-hmm. And I, you get this real um, sense of closeness from it, like closeness to a different culture, which mm-hmm. I think is, you know, it, it's such a, a talent that Corriere has as a director to be able to bring you into this world that is so different, but also not that different at all from, you know, the one that we live in. Mm-hmm. Terrific. That's a recommendation across the board and for me as well. And also to Daniel, who sent in that message about Suspiria. This film has a great soundtrack, in my opinion. It does um, have a great Composed by Harumi Hosono of Yellow Magic Orchestra fame. Really uh, good posters as well for this film. It's just, yeah. great, just everything's great. great. The board. Everything's great. Go and see Shoplifters. <laughs> that seems to be the message from us today. But we'll stay in Japan for Film Club. Up next, Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yes, Film Club this week is Tokyo Story, originally released in 1953 in Japan. It took a few years to get onto the international stage after a screening in London in 1957 and then subsequent screenings in New York in the 60s and 70s. It developed this huge international reputation that was mainly posthumous for Ozu and is now known as one of the greats of world cinema. It's about an old couple that visit their children and grandchildren in Tokyo, but the children just don't seem to have much time for them. It's a, quite a quiet film, but what do the listeners think, Adam? Well, Alex Dudok uh, DeWitt tweets in with a spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. I think we can. I think it's really constitutes. Sixty years is fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. He just says, "Doctors say Tomi won't last till sunrise." Cut to her husband gazing at sunrise. Most beautiful death in all cinema. Yeah. Yeah, Lenny Berger writes in to say, a very old film for a very strange culture, yet the family dynamics are instantly relatable and moving. Please call your parents now. <laughs> and BC Wallin says, recently watched it for the first time, very different greatest film from Citizen Kane or Rules of the Game, that's for certain. It really is, isn't it, Adam? And I said earlier that it develops this international reputation and it's now held up as one of the greatest films of all time. Sight and Sound in there, once in a decade, poll they do critics and filmmakers this film came third in the critics poll in 2012 voted for by people including our own david jenkins but for the director's poll it came top Mm. this time the the greatest film of all time according to people like paul schrader mike lee stephen queen joanna hogg richard ayoade samantha morton and nuri bilger jaylan who we'll talk about next week the turkish filmmaker so it has this incredible reputation is it well earned what's it like watching it today this was my first Ozu. Um, yeah. I, I, I always feel like on this show, like someone will tweet in and be like, how dare you be a film critic having never seen Ozu? But I like that I'd never seen an Ozu film before because it means I come to it having already watched so many films and I can still be surprised by mm-hmm. something and I can still watch something and 
you know, absolutely adore it and understand now the kind of the reach of this film and how it's kind of gone on to inspire so many other filmmakers. Um, so what did surprise you about this, Hannah? I guess the pacing was the thing mm. that surprised me the most because I, I kind of naively thought, when I watched this last night, I was like, oh, well, it won't be that long. It was made in the 50s. You know, nobody made long films in the 50s. They did. <laughs> People did make long films in the 50s. And um, doing my kind of reading about it, this was something that Ozu was kind of known for, his mm. very languid pace. But I think this film needs it. It's so kind of a slice of life. You know, you really get this, this sense for... The, the, the family dynamics, much like in Shoplifters, I think, right. I was saying to you guys, I think this is a lovely film to do alongside Shoplifters because you get the kind of contemporary Japanese family and this very old school Japanese family. But also the thing that I think is interesting is the perception in Japanese culture of like the parents being very like important and like you must respect your elders and in this yeah. film they're kind of all just like oh god like, the, our parents are coming, we love them very much but we have no time to spend with yeah. them and they're all kind of trying to like shirk the responsibility in the end it falls to the uh, widow of the middle son to kind of look after them and she's just like such a doll like the amount of, you know she's absolutely spends all this time with them getting to know them and it, and it all builds to this sort of the, the ending is one of the kind of most remarkable and beautiful and, and sad things that I've seen in kind of recent memory it's you know it's I was very very happy to visit this film. yeah the final shot is a, is a real doozy mm-hmm. um, I mean all his films kind of end in a similar way but yeah. that just moment <laughs> of quiet reflection and contemplation it just sort of really crystallises everything that he's been sort of gradually planting and building up over the over the couple of hours you've been sat watching this family and uh, yeah, I know what you mean about Ozu being... I mean, he's this, like, canonical master filmmaker. Um, <laughs> you know, you hear his name up there with, like, Hitchcock and Bergman mm-hmm. and, and all these other great filmmakers. And i got to say, it was it was a film I first watched quite a few years ago when, back in the days when I used to get, like, love film through the post. Right. And I remember it being on my, like, uh, watch list for a long time and for some reason was, like, maybe they only had, like, two copies of it or something because it took, like, months for it to come through. And uh, yeah, just remember really kind of falling in love with it and wanted to go and check out a few more of his films. But it is it is one of those films where you, you, you sort of see the breadcrumb trail from this through to something like, I don't know, Roma today mm-hmm. or, I mean, the film we've talked about today, Shop Corriere, yeah. Shoplifters. Not just in the, in the way he constructs the narrative, but... In the way he frames the mm-hmm. characters, there's all this stuff if you kind of read about the the making of the film, mm-hmm. the history of it, the way they, I mean, the cinematographer basically like constructed these sets to have yeah. actual ceilings so mm-hmm. that when they were shooting from these low angles, you would kind of get a sense of the space and how the characters kind of fit into it. And it's something I'm not sure many people were really doing before. Not at all, no. There's an amazing photograph that always does the rounds of the, of the actual cameraman yeah. kind of in a, in a sort of dugout hole. Yeah, yeah. He's like he, in a trench. Yeah. But, yeah to get these low-angled shots that feel like you're almost just sitting in the room with them. Mm. Watching this film now, maybe narratively, it's so quiet and unassuming and delivers a punch. But for me, it's just that formal inventiveness or lack mm. of convention. Even though this is 1953, if you look at American cinema, the way of making good movies had been formalised. <laughs> yeah. And But you look at this and he's doing everything wrong in, 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 in some ways. You know, This idea of the 100-degree line of cutting when you do dialogue. Mm. You have an establishing shot and characters are always looking at each other. He'll dance around a room. Mm. So characters are looking one way but talking to somebody else off camera in another direction. Yeah. And it's so interesting. It jolts you out of your... Um, 
your complacency when watching films, but also it just means that you have this sense of space. And the low-angled shots mean to put you on the level with the crouching, the kneeling of Japanese domestic life, mm. which means that there can be this amazing disruption where halfway through the film you have a house that has a chair in it. Yeah. <laughs> and it speaks to how he's very subtly introducing all of these Americanisms that are infecting Japanese culture in this sort of post-war years, the occupation years. He'll have a production design and mise-en-scene packed with American products in the background, American words and slogans and so on. That's his subtle way of saying that this is a way of life that's in danger. I think that formal inventiveness is part of the reason why it's so timeless, right? Mm-hmm. Because it isn't, it doesn't feel dated or kind of rooted to a specific era, even though it is this comment on like, you know, the generational divide in post-war Japan and, you know, these, these younger, I guess they're part of this baby boom generation mm-hmm. of going out to work and rebuilding the society and, and, and then you have this older generation who essentially been forgotten about it's a really kind of stark, poignant comment on that. But mm-hmm. as I say, the formal inventiveness of it makes it quite timeless. Yeah. I think what um, BC Warren said about it being very different from sort of Citizen Kane and uh, Rules of the Game is really a very uh, salient point as well. We talk, we've talked about the formal inventiveness, but also the kind of narrative inventiveness, like all the kind of big moments in this film you don't actually see happen. You know, the train journeys, which are kind of this big, you know, looming mm-hmm. thing. We don't see them. We don't see uh, when Tommy first gets ill we mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. we only really see the sort of aftermath which i think is really interesting and it means that there's a lot less kind of big dramatic acting moments going on like in Citizen Kane it's mm-hmm. very you know it feels like a kind of reaction to all the american cinema and mm-hmm. a step back from that which i yeah i mean i can't believe it's taking me this long i feel i feel embarrassed it's taking this is, me this is another box set out there for you Hannah. <laughs> take a few weeks off. But yeah, talking about this influence and inspiration, I, th- I find the connection with Kureda not necessarily superficial. Of course, they're playing in the similar world mm. of these social, domestic relationship character dramas, family dramas. But I find that Kureda is much more free and organic in the way he's, he films. Ozu is very deliberate, very mm. you know, contained and composed. Although actually, Shoplifters does have quite a striking exchange halfway through the film where the mother figure of the family is talking to a colleague and it does an Ozu direct address one two shot which on um, maybe watching them both side by side maybe i'm drawing too much of a link there no, but it was interesting yeah. but there's something that i i know i've talked on in the past about studio ghibli the animation studio something that ozu introduced into his films with these ideas of what a critic coined the term pillow shots mm. these shots that aren't really establishing shots aren't master shots but they're shots of life going on beautiful tableau that maybe last for four or five seconds that just give a sense of time place mood yeah. and that's all across studio ghibli a train going past on a longer horizon mm. um r- railway tracks rooftops landscapes etc it's something that i think you see in those films as well next yeah, time you watch and, spirited and, away and those images i mean a boat leaving a harbor you know mm-hmm. those images take on so much more meaning mm-hmm. when they're imbued with meaning throughout this kind of narrative sweep and and yeah i think he's he's really it's it's something that so many people have emulated and copied since Studio Ghibli Corriere doesn't do it quite so much I, I see what you mean about people have described him as like the heir to Ozu and he he doesn't do that in, in the same kind of way no. but so many people do I mean it's something which has influenced like, and will continue to influence filmmakers I think mm-hmm. in every generation Another shot from Shoplifters that just came to mind is the fireworks display that you oh, can't yeah. see. They're staring up at the sky in between these houses and it's this shot that just packs so much meaning into a single image I wonder if that, no, I don't know 
I wonder if Corrade has ever spoken about his influence from Ozu. We'd have to <laughs> look into that. Anyway, I think the conclusion of this podcast is Japanese cinema is pretty good. It's pretty uh, great. You should go you and know? watch some films. <laughs> when I was first watching these films, Ozu's films were pretty hard to get hold of. There were only a handful released by Tartan. But actually, the BFI have mm-hmm. recently done a whole restoration project. They're all available on disc. They're all available on BFI Player That's and Amazon I Prime. It on, I watched it on BFI Player. So highly recommend. Take some time and uh, have your mind blown by some Japanese drama. <laughs> Anyway, that wraps it up for this week. What's on the docket for next week? We have Creed 2, boxing sequel. We have Nuri Bilger, Jay Lund's The Wild Pear Tree, another Cannes film from earlier this year. And then for Film Club, Michael Mann's Ali. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Oh, rumble, young man, rumble. Y'all want to lose y'all money? Then you better don't sunny. He know I'm great. He will fall in eight. Come on, you big ugly bear. I'll whoop you right now. Ten and a half. Two ten and a half. The challenger. Cash is played. Two hundred and ten and a half pounds. Man, you showed us right. <laughs> oh, ugly bear. Come on, let's go. You got all these folks fooled. I ain't scared of you. I ain't scared of you. Two hundred eighteen. Two hundred eighteen. Sonny Liston, the champion of the world. Two hundred eighteen pounds. Pounds of what? Pounds of ugly. That man's so ugly, when he sweat, the sweat run backwards off his forehead just to stay away from his face. <laughs> if you want to let us know what you think about that, you can do so at um, Truth and Movies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email or on the comments page at lwlies.com slash podcast. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining me and Hannah as well. Thank you. Thank you for thank having you. me. I've been Michael Leader, and as always, this is a 7 Digital production. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 